have a desire to put it in the hall discipleship. And we have a class on Wednesday night. It's uh, to cultivate spiritual leadership and to teach you how that you be a discipler. And to other folks. And the theme for our current studies is that of uh, how to study the Bible for yourself. And I want Last building down there. At, you know, it's very Secretary from serving the Lord, but from uh, from my ministry at the church. You know, church is about people. Uh, It's about relating to uh, the pastors. It's a shepherd and the flock. It's not about uh, power politics. It's about love. It's about people. It's about a family. The Bible uses familial uh, metaphors, and we need each other. And Pam's role has been one that has been very quiet, has been behind the scenes. You you see the fruits of her labor, but you don't see a lot of the, the mechanics of it because most of that has been uh, behind of that. But she, she has served you. She has served uh, myself for over 33 years, about 33 years and six months. That's a long time, isn't it? That's a long time for anybody at any business, but especially... It's almost unheard of on church staffs uh, for people to stay that long and for people to tolerate each other to be together. Uh, she's been the most long-standing staff member uh, that I've, I've had here, and we've had some long-tenured people before. That's something that's been very special to me. And I appreciate, I said this last, last Sunday morning, I appreciate just as much Andy for permitting her to do this. Uh, this is a, a somewhat of a team effort. Uh, on many, many occasions, I will ask her about something, or she will call me and she say, "Well, Andy is doing this, or he's caring for this," and he not only has uh, given up <clears throat> some things in their home, you know, where she's been working on some some stuff hours away at uh, caring for for church business, Um, but then also has taken on some of the the things that she has done, and it's been a labor of love 
uh, for both of them. Um, and I, I just appreciate uh, this couple very, very much. They are, as are, are all of you, but some of you more than others, not because I have favorites, but I've just known some of you longer. That's also an issue of depth because I've had an opportunity to get to know you more. But uh, Andy and Pam are not, not just church members. They are very dear, dear friends of mine. Uh, we, we've kind of been through some, some things together. I don't mean that by bad things. It's been good. But uh, we've been through some, some adversities together um, on both sides of the coin. I, I've been there for them. They've been there for me. And we've just showed up. We've just been there. And now we got to, we got gray hair, there's a little hobble in our gate. But uh, God's been faithful, hasn't he? He's been so faithful to us. So they're going <clears> to <throat> travel a little bit. They got a, uh, is that a trailer? Is that what you call that thing? Yeah, I've been in that thing. Uh, we went on a trip with uh, uh, down to Florida, and I think Charlie and Kathy stayed with them in that thing. And Paula and I were someone at, somewhere else, and we we went and, and uh, sat down and drank a cup of coffee with them in it. But uh, they're going to travel in that trailer, and they'll still be serving God. You'll be seeing them around and still be doing something. Brother Andy... Uh, Help Brother Gary Adams with his class, a friendship Bible class. And then uh, as Gary began to weaken and then went on to be with the Lord, took that uh, class and has done such a great job with it. And now uh, Brother Bill Brewer will be uh, picking that up. But I uh, I told Paula there's a lot of things I, I, uh, I wanted to say, and I thought I would just... Um, read a portion, uh, not the whole letter, but of a personal letter that I wrote Pam nine years ago. Um, after her, her 25th anniversary here at the church, I, I sent her a letter. And I, I never read this in public, but uh, I gave this to her. Will you come up here, Andy and Pam? Would y'all come up here and stand with me? Paula, will you come up here with me? Please. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to read uh, several paragraphs of this uh, this letter that that I wrote Pam because this encapsulates um, her life and her ministry and. Uh, better than than anything I could have come up with. And here's what I wrote. I said, I well remember the afternoon I met with you and Andy about the possibility of your coming to work in the secretarial position. At the time, I had no idea that you had experience in that job in another company. Was that Brown? Was it? I think it was somewhere. You're, You're just making that up. You're just saying that it wasn't Brown. I know her too well. Your skills were perfect for the task. More than your abilities have been your attitude that you are ultimately serving the Lord while doing behind-the-scenes type of job and getting little credit, little to no credit. Whenever I assign you a project, I know that you will not only do a great job, but you will plus it. That's a little thing, a staff thing. 
I wonder how many times you have corrected my spelling, cleaned up my awkward phrasing, and made my communications to people look and sound better than when I wrote them. You have had my complete confidence so much that I have given you a blank check to fix things as you see the need. That is the ultimate compliment someone could have from a leader. In recent years, I'm sorry, now this is nine years ago. In recent years, I have watched you be faithful in spite of your own physical challenges. Because she, she really had some physical issues. Then also dealing with Andy's cancer scare. Unexpected deaths in your family, your parents' special needs, and ministering to your sister. While I have tried to be sensitive and not piling work on you during these seasons, you have never complained when we needed something cared for at the last minute. Because I write a lot, I know creative work takes a lot of time and reflection, and the projects you have done must have kept you up late at night at times. Also, I know it's been difficult working with me the past decade as I have struggled physically and emotionally. Under ideal circumstances, ministry can be stressful, but my own fatigue has caused me to miss and adjust meeting times, and that has only added to the problem. For your flexibility and kindness, I am humbled and grateful. And I'm also very sorry for the additional angst that this has caused at times. We have had a lot of fun memories, usually centered around practical jokes at staff meetings. You and Kathy Belcher are like gasoline and fire, an explosion waiting to happen, a tornado about to fall from the clouds, a bullet from a gun. Well, you get the idea. Pam, I appreciate your loyalty. I trust you with private information, issues about sensitive matters. It's not easy to serve with a leader like myself. You have seen me in the best of times and the worst of times. When there was no money in the church account and the bills were piling up. When good people and friends decided to leave our church for another church. Some of them whom I had led to Christ and discipled. When I was deeply discouraged and wanted to quit. And maybe that's why loyalty so touches my heart in these days. It's not always easy to be loyal, but you have done so. Your work speaks for itself, always quality, but your life is a better sermon. Though you deserve more pay and recognition, you have a joyful contentment in the place that God has given you in our church and on the staff. Thank you for being more than a secretary and an assistant but for being a friend to Paula and my children. You have blessed our lives as a family. Many years ago, you reminded me about a time when one of your sisters was visiting you in the office and you introduced her to me. You told me that I expressed to her my appreciation for your work and that you were a friend as well as a staff member, and that's true. It has always been my goal to be friends with the staff, and you have been a good friend to me. It has been a great joy to serve with you and to benefit from your expertise and wisdom. You represent Christ, your family, your church, and myself well. It's so mundane that we tend to take it for granted until someone doesn't do it well. 
thank you for doing the ordinary extraordinarily well. One day you will receive an incredible reward in heaven for your faithfulness. And I wrote down Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we uh, have taken up an offering. I, if you still want to give to that, you can give it in the box or online. And uh, we'll give her whatever cash we have left over. But we want to give her something tangible uh, that she can have. And, uh, you know, there's kind of a full-orbed thing. But uh, we have that. Do you have that? Yeah. You want to open that up? You can do that. It scares me. No, no scaring. No scaring. I am not going to scare you. No scaring. No, it's not from Kathy. No, Kathy would be good to you. No, ma'am. No, you don't have to open the card now, but I would like for you to look at that real quickly and just uh, take your time. It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Just something, uh, a little memorable thing from our church for you. You're welcome. It's a necklace. It's something feminine. Yeah, so, yeah. Let's give her a hand, okay? Welcome. Love you. No, I do. Love you. Welcome. Love you too, Andy. God bless you, my friend. Love y'all. Thank you. After the service, we're going to go next door uh, and have a fellowship. I hope you'll come over there and get some grub and... Uh, Say hey to Pam and Andy and tell, tell them how much that you love them. Did I tell you we're in Psalm 14? I think I did. We're going to look there in just a moment. I want to talk to you this morning about the greatest motivator that we have, which is the cross of Jesus. Let me pull this up here. Excuse me. This will help me a little bit. The greatest motivator we have, the cross of Jesus. Um, I find it very interesting that in 1 Corinthians 11, when our Lord is talking about his death, he says, I want you to remember me. The greatest act in human history of devotion and commitment and love is the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. He said, this do in remembrance of me. In other words, you're going to forget about me. How in the world, how in the world can we forget about Jesus? But there's something depraved in all of us that we, we become familiar with what is special to us. We, be, we become numb to it, and that which is precious becomes common. You do it in your family. You do it with your kids. Uh, you do it in church. Uh, the person beside you, the person in front of you, uh, the person behind you. 
and we begin to, to take them for granted. And we see this in the cross where now it's, it's a religious symbol. We have people that are not Christians. I've seen people that are, are they're not Christians at all, but they'll wear cross earrings, they'll wear a cross necklace. Because it's a symbol of peace, it's a symbol of, of love, it's a symbol of, of unity. And people that, that do not profess to be Christians at all are wearing this. But in Jesus' day, there was nothing uh, special about a cross. It, w- it was a tool with which they used to enact capital punishment. What would you do if you were going out to eat this week and you saw... You saw someone and you told your wife, look at that around their neck, and it was an electric chair. Or you looked at someone and they had earrings and it was, it was the gallows where they hung people. You would say, that, that person, is, something's wrong with them. They're celebrating. Now, I'm not, I'm not scolding you that you shouldn't wear a cross. I'm trying to get you to see what it meant back then. It was an ugly, ugly thing But because of Jesus' death, it's been made beautiful. But people that don't know Christ, they they assign it to something else. The Romans, there were others that practiced crucifixions, but the the Romans took it and they made it, I hate to call it an art form, but they did that. The Romans crucified thousands of people every year, every year. In fact, the year that Jesus died, thousands of people were crucified, but we only remember one name. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was crucified, and that was Simon Peter. And he said, I want to be crucified. The, the traditional story says that he was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like, like my Savior. And they did. They crucified Peter upside down. There were four types of crosses, according to Roman history, that they crucified people on. And the Lord Jesus Christ was, was crucified on the Latin cross. And it was shaped like a T. You, you're very familiar with it. Not a literal T, but a, a, a small T. <clears throat> Not a capital T, but a small T. And on the upper bar, they were able to, to, to put his crimes. That's why they, they nailed his crimes there. And at the bottom, there was a little platform. And at the platform... Uh, the the victim, the criminal, was able to put his feet so that the nails literally didn't pull his pull through his his hands and where he would just fall onto the ground. But there was another purpose for the lower platform. It was to create more agony because a person died from asphyxiation. They could not breathe, and they would have to push up on that lower platform to get a breath, and and then push down. And so the cross of Jesus is inextricably linked to the Lord Jesus Christ, to who he was, his person, and what he did, his work. And so when the Lord says, he says, I want you to remember me. I remember long about 1981, I heard someone say this, and I wrote it down, I never forgot it. They said, you really only believe what motivates you. You really only believe what motivates you. That's true. That's true. What motivates you? Uh, precious friends, uh, 
Some of us have not invited anybody for Easter, and, and there are people waiting to be invited. You know why? You're not motivated. And all that Jesus did, all that He did on the cross, all that He suffered for us, there, there's no motivation. It's been weeks, it's been months, it's been years since you've mentioned the name of Jesus to a person and you've shared the gospel with anybody because you're not motivated to, because you do not, you do not love Him. I want to share a, a very simple outline. I've shared this before, but I want to do it again today. And it's given to us in John chapter 14, and then we'll look at the scriptures here. Notice in verse 1, John 14 and verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. Look at this, the Lord looked down from heaven. There's four stages to the cross. The first one is the Lord looked down. And he looked down because he cared for us. The Lord looked down from heaven. He had to look down because the Bible said his throne is high and lifted up. Now here's what I know about people that that have high positions and that are imbued with authority. They don't like to look down. They like to have dinners and and like to have interactions with people of, of their own skill level and of their own tribe, they, they don't like to go down and have anything to do with other people that are less than them. But when God saved you, He came down. The Lord looked down. Holy, just, and righteous. And He looked down at sinners. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 57 in verse 15, For thus saith, look at this, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Notice what he's called, the high one, the lofty one, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And he looked down. Eternal God, holy God, righteous God, he, he looked down. I love this text in Psalm 113 and verse, verses 5 and 6. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He had to humble himself and he looked down. Psalm 14, 2, the Lord looked down. In the Hebrew that's used of a person leaning out of a window to gaze, watching a spectacle, as it were, God watching this spectacle upon earth. What did he see? The Lord looked down. Well, the Bible says he saw fools in verse 1, saying there is no God, people that are corrupt. The word corrupt there means to be decayed, to be ruined. This is speaking of our hearts. People that are doing abominable works. When you read the word abomination, it means a special type of sin that God hates. The Bible again there says in verse uh, 3, they have all gone aside. They've walked away. They're withdrawn. They're not walking with me. 
verse 3, they are all together become filthy. They're morally corrupt. The Lord looked down. What does He see when He sees you? He sees a sinner. He sees someone that has rejected Him. Notice in verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. There were none. We were dead in trespasses and sin. The wages of sin is death. The Lord looked down. He cares for us. May we never look down upon sinners. May we love people because Christ loves sinners. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Lord looked down. And He's looking down upon people, your neighbors and, and the people you work with and the people you go to school with, and He loves them. The Lord looked down because He cares. And not only did the Lord look down, but God came down. And this required humility of our Lord. He had to come as a Savior to die for our sins and to become sins, the payment for our our sin debt. If you want to look in John chapter 6, this is given to us over and over again. John chapter 6, and notice in verse 38, John six thirty-eight. Jesus said, For I came down from heaven. Not only did he not just look down, but, but he came down to earth. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. The Father sent him, and he came down. Look at verse 41. The Jews murmured at Christ because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. He was making himself equal with his Father. Look at verse 51. The Lord Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I came down. Look at verse 58, same chapter. Jesus said, this is that bread which came down from heaven. God looks down and he sees sinners and he loves them and he cares for them. And he came down in his humility and he set aside his glory. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 verses 6 through 8 says that he was in the form of God. That means he was deity. He had all the attributes of God. And he thought it not robbery. Now, that's an old English word, but means to cling to something for selfishness sake. I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to hold on to this. This is my privilege. This is my right. He didn't have to come down and and be beaten. He didn't have to come down and tolerate sinners. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, even though he was God of very God. He had the attributes of God. But he made himself of no reputation. That means that he divested himself not of deity, but of the independent exercise of the attributes of deity. He was still God, but he lived his life in humility and dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him, rather than the form of God, though he was God, he he took upon the form of a servant servant. 
made in the likeness of men, and found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He looked down, he came down, and he became obedient. The Son of God humbled himself and obeyed the Father's will. And his obedience demanded that he died. But notice, even, even the death of the cross. God looked down and he came down in humility. Does this not stir you? Does this not motivate you? It shouldn't take the Lord's table. It shouldn't take a sermon. It shouldn't take us printing invitation cards. It shouldn't take a special day. It shouldn't even take Sunday. A few weeks ago, I was in the cemetery where my best friend was buried. He had his birthday on March the 15th. And the next day in 1979, on March the 16th, he was killed in a horrible accident on Governor's Drive in Jordan Lane. There's an overpass there now on the interstate, but right under there, my best buddy was killed. Every year on the anniversary date, I, I go to his grave. Paula went with me this year, and we walked around in the cemetery there. And I remember my friend. I miss my friend. When we were in the ninth grade, we played football together. And I invited him to our church, and he came on a Sunday night. He wasn't there. I said, is he going to come? He just lived two streets away. He could be there in three minutes. He's not going to come. I kept looking around. I kept looking around, and finally I saw him coming down the aisle. We were standing up singing a song. It was so much fun. David was so much fun. And I excitedly told my parents, David's coming. And so we kind of stepped back to make room for him. And instead, he hadn't been to church in, in a long, long time. He didn't know how, church protocols. He didn't understand how to behave in church. He, he stepped on the back of the pews and, and kind of lowered his back so he wouldn't stand up from people. And then he just plopped down by me. And everything was new. The songs, everything. And he started coming. And I remember that night. On a Sunday night, when I put my arm around him, I said, David, wouldn't you like to be saved? He said, Rick, I would. He didn't have a father. His father had left him when he was two years old. Doesn't even remember his dad. I took my buddy down the left aisle, and we went down to the right part of that aisle. And I put my arm around him, and I won my best friend to Jesus Christ. My daddy didn't make me do that. My pastor didn't make me do that. I wanted to do that because I loved my friend David and Jesus died for David and he died for me and I wanted David to have what I had. My motivation was what Christ had done for me. God looked down and he came down. And then I want you to notice what he did. He laid down. God laid down his life. This speaks of ultimate love. If you'll notice in your Bible there in John chapter 10, notice several things here. In John chapter 10, notice in verse 15, John 10, 15. And the Bible says, as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Nobody killed Jesus. Somebody says, well, the Jews killed Jesus. No, they didn't. The Romans killed Jesus. No, they didn't. He, he wasn't a martyr. He wasn't a suicide. Jesus laid his life down. He came down. And he laid down his life. John chapter 10, look at verse 17. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life. That I may take it again. I'm going to rise again. Verse 18, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. When he died, he said it is finished. He laid his life down. Nobody killed him. He died on his own terms. In John chapter 15 and verse 13, Greater love hath no man this than a man lay down, lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15 and verse, I'm, I'm sorry, First John chapter 3 and verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. When those Jewish soldiers, those Romans, pardon me, those Roman soldiers were used to, to wrestling men to the cross. Because those men knew what was in store, the pain and the searing pain that went through their nerves when they put those spikes through their hands or through their wrists because the wrist was considered a part of the hand and through their feet and they, they would fight them. But when they put that man from Galilee down there, Jesus Christ, there was no fight. There was no struggle. Later on, one of the Romans said, surely this man is the son of God. You know why? Because he looked down and he came down and he laid his life down. You're in John chapter uh, 10. Look at John chapter 19 with me. Notice what was involved in this laying down his life. Look at verse 1, John 19, 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. We talk about the cat of nine tails, these professional executioners, these Roman soldiers, these big brutes, these guys, big muscle-bound guys. They had these leather-bound strips, and at the end of it were pieces of bone and pieces of metal. I've, the best analogy I've come up with it is like fish hooks. And the Romans had a law that you could only beat a man 39 times because you couldn't go over 40. So they would go one less. Well, these were not, these were not Jews. These were Romans. And they weren't careful that they strike the back. They would raise that up and it would wrap around a man. And it, those fish hooks, as it were, would wrap into his skin. And, and Josephus, a historian, said that men died from being disemboweled, where literally their intestines would fall on the ground from the muscle being torn. And sometimes it would go about the face. I'll show you why I think about that. In other parts of the body, he was scourged for you and me. Verse 2, And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. All around Israel are, are, are thorn bushes. I'm talking about not what you're thinking now with these little thorns like this. They're thorns. I've got some in my office about like this. And they're very flexible. So you're able to, 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 to make something out of them. They made like a crown. And the Bible says they pressed it in other passages. You have more capillaries 
in, in, in your forehead than anywhere in your Bible. After they scourged him, and he began, he began to bleed. Notice in verse 3, they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they smote him with their hands. Other passages, parallel passages, they say, hey, hey, who hit you? Prophesying to us. Who hit you? They spat upon him. Mark chapter 15 and verse 19. And they smote him with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. All this was done in mockery. That's why they put a purple robe upon him. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6, a a prophetic passage says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. They they begin to not only hit him, they begin to pull, they begin to pull his beard from him. Many years ago, I was preaching a message like this on Easter Sunday. And the price that Jesus paid for us. And a young man that was in our church, he was probably 17 or 18 years old. He was sitting right over here. He literally stood up and he began to stumble. And he fainted before he got out the back door. Because his stomach could not contain what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ when he hung there for us. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14, many were astonished at him. We get the word astonished. It means they were horrified. They were stunned. They were in awe. When they put him up on the cross, it was was a show. but, But the thieves were there, but they weren't beaten like him. You've seen some pictures maybe where Jesus is black and blue. All over. That was part of it, but it was worse than that. Again, in Isaiah 52, 14, his visage, his personage was so marred more than any man. It means disfigured. And his form, his form than the sons of men. May I say it this way? He didn't even look like a human. He didn't look like a person. I say this reverently when I preach on this. I say it this way sometimes. Not for shock value, but, but let you get an eye, idea. Because these people, it was by a road there in Jerusalem. They would come by and it was like a show when people were executed. I wonder what this one did. But when they came to reading the sign of Jesus, well, what is that in the middle? Is that an animal? Is that a dog? That's not a person. What, what, what is that in the middle? His visage was more disfigured than any other man. It was more marred than they were astonished. And then in John chapter 19 and verse 16, they delivered him therefore to be crucified. Verse 18, they crucified him. You know, 1 Peter is written for people that are suffering. It's a wonderful book. If you're going through a hard time, read 1 Peter. I was reading through it on yesterday in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. The Bible says, For Christ also has suffered, once suffered for sins. I want you to notice some. It doesn't say he died, though he did. It says he died in other places. 
He wants you to know he didn't just die, he suffered. Oh, man, I'm suffering. So did he. When he died, he suffered. He suffered. Crucifixion, I'm going to read to you a portion. Please follow me. I don't like to read because it's hard to read and keep your attention. Would you listen? Crucifixion was only used in the vilest of criminals. And its degradation was part of the punishment. The victim was stripped naked and laid down upon the implement of torture. His arms were stretched along the cross beams and at the center of the palm. Some believe the wrist area was between the bones. The point of an iron nail was placed and then with the blow of a mallet was driven through the flesh into the wooden beam. Then through either foot separately or possibly through both together as they were placed one over the other. Another huge nail tore its way through the quivering flesh. Whether the sufferer was also bound to the cross, we do not know. But to prevent the hands and the feet being torn away by the weight of the body, which could not rest upon nothing but four great wounds, there was about the center of the cross a wooden projection strong enough, this is at the feet, to support it, at least in part, a human body. This soon become a weight of agony for the person. And then the accursed tree with its living human burden was slowly heaved up and the end fixed firmly in a hole in the ground. The feet were but a little raised above the earth. The victim was in full reach of every hand that might choose to strike. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramping, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, publicity of shame, the long continence, continuance of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of untended wounds. These all intensify just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds, inflamed by exposure, gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially of the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on, Gradually increasing, there was added unto them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. Such was the death to which Jesus Christ was doomed. I'm offended sometimes when people say, well, you you have to trust Christ to be saved, but you need to be baptized. You have to join the church. You have to... You have to go through confirmation. Pray tell me why in the world, why in the world did he have to go through all of that? He looked down. He came down. He laid his life down for you and your family and your friends. I'm talking about the one that's profane. I'm talking about the one that's wicked. I'm talking about the one that you said they will never 
be saved. But God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We had a precious family in our church and the mother was married to a man that was abusive. It was very abusive. And so when the mother and the family passed away, I was called upon to do the funeral. And here was the stepfather as such that really cared for no one, very selfish, emotionally, physically. And I said, after the funeral was over, I need, I need to give this man an opportunity to be saved. Lived in an assisted living place, and I went to see him. Got his address, I went to see him. I knocked on the door, I walked in, and his chair, he had two chairs, and I don't know why the television was about four feet in front of him. I guess he had a bad eyesight or something. About four feet in front of him, and there was a chair right beside him. I introduced him, he said, I remember who you are. A little bit gruff. I said, well, I don't know if this is going to go good. I said, well, I came by to talk to you, and there was a Bible on top of the TV. That was interesting. He said, he grabbed the Bible after I was seated, and he gave it to me. He said, I want you to tell me what you told those people at the funeral this past week. And I took his Bible, and I went through the Bible and explained the gospel and he bowed his head and he trusted Christ. I told a friend of mine about that. And he said, what's his name? And I told him, he said, I know him. He said, I worked with him. And here's what he said. He said, he was the most profane man I've ever known in my life. In all of my life, the most profane man I've ever known. Well, here's a man that is later in his years. So I tried to follow up on him. I tried to disciple him. That's our job. So I'd call him, and there at the center, they had a billiards. They had pool and stuff, you know, a couple of billiard tables. Well, I'm not any good. I like to play, but I'm not any good. Found out he wasn't either. He would just cheat. If he had a bad ball, he'd just move it over. He wasn't fully sanctified yet. See, so I would take my boys, and they'd say, Daddy, he's cheating. I said, shh, it's just he called me up and uh, Rick, you want to play pool? I said, yeah, I'll be right over. And I began to teach him the Word of God. Then he got sick, and within about a year and a half, he passed away. Nobody's hopeless. Nobody's hopeless. Jesus looked down. He came down, and he laid his life down for sinners. God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? But there's one more thing He did. Is He sat down. And when He sat down, this speaks of 
the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. There's a book in the in the New Testament that corresponds to the sacrificial system. It's the book of Hebrews. And he shows how that Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of, of the Old Testament high priest. And now because of what Jesus accomplished, we can reign not just in heaven, but we can reign on earth with him in our spirits and in our behavior. We don't have to be conquered by attitudes in what had conquered us. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 speaks of our Savior, who being in the brightness of His glory and express image of His person, upholding all things by His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. You see, when the high priest came into the Holy of Holies, there was different furniture in the holy place and the Holy of Holies. I'm sitting in a chair. There was no chair. Because a chair was a picture that your work is accomplished. You can rest. And he was always busy working. You know what Jesus is doing now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's hearing our prayers. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's a place of honor at the right hand. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. His redemption work is over. And now we have victory. He looked down. He came down. and He laid down. And now he sat down and he invites you to come. My uh, doctor I went to for many, many years. My family doctor. One day I went in and he wasn't there. And then another time and I found out that he had open heart surgery. Finally I went in after a few months I got to see him. And we were good friends. I said, Doc, what's going on? He said, well, I don't know if you heard. I had open heart surgery. I had three bypasses. He said, I was really tired. I feel better now. He said, you know, before I, I understood, I thought I understood people. But now I not only know what it means to be a doctor, but I understand people's problems. I became a better doctor and the Bible says we can go to our Father and go to our Savior. In Hebrews four fifteen and 16, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. That means open-mouthed. I, I, I can say anything. He can take it. Under the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy after you've blown it, go to the throne of grace. And find grace to help in time of need before you blow it. He's there after you mess up and he's there before you mess up. To sustain you, to forgive you, he's there. And he can help you and he can take care of you. Let me show you one more text. I read the first part, but I want you to see the second part. 
Psalm 113, verses 5 through 8. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and earth. He looks down and he comes down. And now he raiseth up the poor. This is me and you out of the dust. And lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, the worst place we can be. That God may set him and her with princes and princesses, even with the princes of this people. Have you lost your motivation? What motivates you? Do you remember Christ? Do you love him? Some of you have been there. I remember when I went to Israel, we went to the place called Gordon's Calvary. You can't go up to it. Now it's an Arab cemetery. You can see some of the headstones there. And right below it is a, is a gas station. And I kind of lingered there and, and just looked and thought, there, there's where my Savior died. It's a real place. It happened in real time. One day, if you've never seen it, you'll get to see it. But better yet, you'll get to see him. When Daniel opened up a while ago, he, he said, remember, remember, remember. Are you forgetting him? He looked down. He saw all this mess, all this mess, and we're all in a mess. So he came down and he humbled himself. And he laid down in love and paid the price. And was raised again from the dead. And now he is set down so that you and I have a victory that we do not deserve. And we can reign with him. Now I want you to bow your heads with me in prayer if you would. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I wonder if there's someone here today, a man or woman or a teenager, that say, Pastor, I'm not 100% sure that if I were to die that I'd go to heaven. I, I don't know for sure that I know Jesus is my Savior, but I'm interested in it. I don't know for sure that if I were to die that I'd go to heaven, but I'm interested in it. That's you. Would you slip your hand up and down so I could...